Thank you for listening to the Coal Mind Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas, and it's January 24th, 2021. The House of Representatives has impeached Donald Trump for the events at the Capitol on January 6th, and the Senate is going to proceed with a trial on those articles of impeachment. Some Republicans have indicated that they will vote against impeachment because that process cannot constitutionally occur once a president leaves office. This episode reviews what the Constitution's text, structure, intent, and history say about that important issue. With apologies to Darth Vader, the main principles of constitutional interpretation are sometimes called the Sith Method, S-I-T-H, for structure, intent, text, and history, and those are the principles that will guide me as I look at the question of a post-term impeachment today. I'll start with the text, where we have two helpful but incomplete phrases. The first is in Article 2 of the Constitution, which establishes the executive branch of our federal government. Section 4 of Article 2 says, The President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. A recent op-ed in the Washington Post by former Fourth Circuit Judge Michael Ludig notes that this provision supports Mr. Trump's side of this issue. A person logically cannot be removed from office unless they are in the office, and that necessarily would mean that impeachment is limited to persons holding office at the time of the proceedings. And that argument is strengthened by the definition of the relevant offices in this clause. It refers to the president, vice president, and civil officers. It doesn't say potential or former officeholders. The clause simply lists offices that only have meaning if someone is in fact holding those offices. But on the other hand, there is Article 1, which establishes the legislative branch of government. Section 3 of Article 1 says that judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. Of course, you can be disqualified to hold an office whether or not you are in that office, and an argument based on this clause says that it necessarily means that the Constitution does not require the person being impeached to be in office at the time of the proceedings. So we know two things from the text of the Constitution. First, if the president is impeached, he must be removed from office. Second, a judgment of impeachment may include, in addition to removal, disqualification. To read either of these clauses to answer that question requires logical inferences from the point actually addressed in the sentence, so neither speaks directly to the question and is really conclusive of it. With that foundation in the text, I now look to intent. What were the framers of the Constitution thinking at the time of the convention when they were hammering out the language? Here again, unfortunately, the answer is not conclusive. On Mr. Trump's side of the issue, in the late 18th century, Britain had a system where Parliament could impeach anyone except, of course, the king. And the Constitution clearly rejects that concept of impeachment because it expressly limits who may be impeached. Recall the language I read above that restrains the impeachment power to the president, vice president, and senior officers of government. But on the other side of the issue, the Constitutional Convention was taking place in 1787, and on the other side of the Atlantic, Parliament was in the process of a very high-profile impeachment of a gentleman named Warren Hastings, who had previously held office in their government as the Governor General of India, but did not hold office at the present time. He was clearly a former senior officer of the British government, and the framers surely were aware of those proceedings at the time they were speaking about the issue of impeachment. So the intent evidence is, at best, inconclusive. There are lessons that we can learn from the British experience with impeachment and what they were doing with it at the time of the convention. That's 
indirect at best, and does not really bear on the specific language that ultimately found its way into the Constitution. This brings us to history, which somewhat favors the side of impeachment, although not that strongly. There are two cases in particular, both very colorful and very important in their time. For the information I give on this, I acknowledge the powers and procedures section of the U.S. Senate's very detailed website, both about its own procedures and its own history. The first was Senator William Blount of 1798. He was an active politician at the time. He'd served in the Revolutionary Army, state legislature, and participated in the Constitutional Convention. He was also a land speculator. He'd gotten into financial trouble, and to get out of a financial problem he was in, he concocted a somewhat harebrained-sounding scheme where he was going to encourage the Creek and Cherokee Indians to attack Florida and Louisiana so that the colonial powers that held those lands would be inclined to transfer them to England instead of the United States, and he would profit by English investors paying him back for having encouraged this activity. A letter he wrote about this scheme was intercepted. It made its way to President Adams, who was, of course, furious because the United States wanted to ultimately acquire Florida and Louisiana. He presented it to Congress, who was also outraged. The Senate voted to expel Mr. Blount, and then it proceeded that same day with impeachment proceedings. A resolution was introduced that said Mr. Blount is an impeachable officer within the meaning of the clause I read earlier, senior officer of the U.S. government, and that resolution was voted down, and the impeachment proceeding ended at that point. Why was it voted down? The Senate didn't say. It could have been because of a belief that no senator could be impeached at that stage. It could be a senator was not a civil office to which impeachment could attach. And so they had started with the trial, but then on a point of procedure, were unable to reach a consensus, and the proceeding simply fizzled out. Mr. Blount returned to his home state and faded away quietly, did not encourage any more revolutions. The second was William Belknap, who served as the Secretary of War under Ulysses Grant. The Grant administration, while President Grant himself was not ever seriously accused of corruption, his senior officials were notoriously corrupt, and even by those standards, Secretary Belknap was really exceptional. A scandal erupted into the public eye in 1876 to obtain a recommendation to President Grant by which he could become Secretary of War. He had made a side deal with his benefactor to get his benefactor's friend the right to operate the military trading post at Fort Sill, the only trading post in Indian territory extremely lucrative operation in exchange for periodic payments to him for several years of $20,000 every quarter, a lot of money by 1876 standards. On March 2nd of 1876, just before the House was going to vote on articles of impeachment, Belknap resigned. The House went ahead anyway and sent the Senate five articles of impeachment later that day, rather colorfully accusing him of baselessly prostituting his high office to his lust for private gain. Some weeks later, the Senate convened its trial in early April. Belknap was there. The Senate reached a consensus on the record that it had impeachment jurisdiction over former officials. It heard from 40 witnesses about issues of the case. And on August 1st, 1876, a majority of the Senate voted against Belknap on all the articles, but it fell short of the constitutionally required two-thirds, which means he was acquitted. Proceedings against him died out. He himself passed away in 1890. So here again, the Senate began a trial against a former official. It was satisfied that it had the power to do so, but then ultimately, as the proceedings went on, it just fizzled out. The necessary two-thirds was not reached, and of course, you don't have to give a reason for voting against it. Could be they didn't like the evidence, could be they thought it was bad politics, could be they had some people still had doubts about whether or not the Senate had that power.
Those historical examples bring us now to the structure. And as we've seen before, the text doesn't clearly answer the question, and there's nothing obvious about the separation of powers where an answer just leaps out as to whether or not you could have an impeachment of a former official. Is the Constitution's silence on this deliberate? Put another way, is the Constitution's failure to speak directly to this question the inevitable consequence of the framers drafting a document that was deliberately short and general? It's true, it doesn't say former or future in the list of officers in the impeachment clause that we read before, but to be fair, if that kind of language about possible contingencies was added everywhere in the Constitution where it could apply, the document would be many times longer than it is, and perhaps could never have been written in the first place because it would have been that many more things that people would have had to reach a consensus about. It may well be that this is simply the kind of problem that was not addressed in the general broad outlines of government given to us in the Constitution, and the framers simply expect us to fill in that kind of gap ourselves through our own political representatives and our own political consensus. That's the lesson, really, from the cases of Senator Blout and Secretary Belknap. In both of those cases, courts were not involved. The Senate formed its own beliefs about what its power was, initiated impeachment proceedings against those former officials. But those cases also show that it is hard to sustain over time the amount of political will that is required to actually impeach a former officeholder and reach the two-thirds votes that are required by our Constitution. Both men, not unlike our current president, did something very high profile that drew a great deal of attention in the media of the day, and several months later, their cases simply ran out of steam and faded away. That will surely be the political question in the proceedings about President Trump, whether people's outrage about the events of January 6th will continue to motivate them several weeks and perhaps even months into the future. And given the lack of other milestones that we have in the text and history and intent of the Constitution, that is likely the constitutional question as well. The Senate has that power to proceed with impeachment and conclude with a judgment of impeachment if it has the political will to do so. Today on Coal Mind, I consider the power of the Senate to hold an impeachment trial for Donald Trump after he has left federal office. The text of the Constitution is inconclusive, as is the evidence about Framers' intent. History is generally consistent in two high-profile cases with the power to impeach, but it's only two cases, and neither has been reviewed by the courts. The answer appears to be political, left open, perhaps deliberately so, challenging us to form our own consensus in our own time to fill in the answer. And the historical examples suggest that it is quite hard to form that consensus, leading all the way to an actual judgment of impeachment. As the impeachment proceedings go forward, I expect further discussion on coal mine of the constitutional issues that it presents. The Biden administration has now taken office and appears to have a strong view of the federal right to regulate certain matters. There will likely be a number of debates about the appropriate balance of authority between federal and state governments on a number of important policy issues of the day, and I'm sure I'll be addressing those in upcoming episodes. If you like the podcast, I encourage you to leave a nice review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.